0: Before we get rolling into today's podcast, I want to tell you about our awesome sponsors that uh, keep this thing free for you guys. So first we have duckseason.com. That's D-U-K-S-Z-N dot com. Uh, Go on there, check it out. Uh, You can get signed up for uh, Traded Hunts, where you put in your location, the kind of birds you're after, you know, the type of things that you do and uh, you can search around on there, see other people, their areas, what they go after, and you can talk with each other and get linked up and trade hunts with each other. So rather than hiring an outfitter or a guide, if you're on a budget or kind of want to do a little bit of a DIY thing, you can get linked up with some people, go hunt in their area, they come out and hunt in your area. It's a really cool thing. Also on there, there's some forums, you know, duck hunting, waterfowl hunting in general, different tips and advice, things like that. And they also have a lot of merchandise, really cool stuff. And in their merchandise, they have the Salty Fowl line of clothing, where 100% of the profits from that go to uh, Eider Research out there on the coast. So really cool cause. Go check it out. Go buy some stuff. Get on some trade hunts. You definitely won't regret it. Next, we have Steady Wing Outfitters, that's Mikey Soberano. He's up there in northeast Kansas, and he uh, specializes in waterfowl, turkey, and deer. You can check him out on Instagram at Steadywing Outfitters. Uh, and if you want to book a hunt, you can give him a call. His number is 785 410 2304. Next, we have 701 Pursuit. They're over there in North Dakota. They're making a bunch of awesome hunting and fishing content. It's on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, all of the places. Go check them out for some high quality stuff. They also have a website with some merchandise and other things on it. Uh, the website is 701pursuit.com. That's the numbers, 701pursuit.com. So check them out. All the places that you have social media, they're on there somewhere. Next we have Bulldog Baits. It's over there in western Oklahoma. Uh, they're making crankbaits, jigs, soft plastics, spoons, jig heads, sinkers, anything you need for fishing. They've got it. So you can check them out on uh, Instagram. It's bulldog underscore baits. And if you want to go on their website to order some stuff, it's bulldog-baits.square.site. So, if you're needing anything, definitely, definitely go check them out. Also, on the same note, we have Stump Thumper Baits. Their website is stumpthumperbaits.com. They also have soft plastics, jigs, all that type of stuff. Want to check them out, too? On Instagram, their handle is at stumpthumperbaits. They're also Facebook, anywhere else. Now we have Waylon Johnson and his guide service. He's over in the San Antonio area. Uh, He's hunting ducks, geese, anything waterfowl you guys want to get on over there down in Texas. You can give him a call at 361-494-7868. You can also find him on Facebook. Uh, His name is just Waylon Johnson. See what he's been up to. Check out the cool birds down there. All that good stuff. And lastly, we have my dog training business up here in Northeast Montana. I specialize in retrievers, but I train all sorts. Basic obedience, force fetch, waterfowl upland, anything you're looking to get done with your dog, I can help you out with. Um, You can check us out on Facebook, Instagram, all the normal places. It's H-I-L-I-N-E, Retrievers. And then if you're looking for some advice or looking to uh, get set up with some training, give me a call. My number is 406 783 7083. Thanks a lot. Thanks to our sponsors. Go check them all out and enjoy the show.
1: Well, a cubby took wing. Shotguns singing. A pointing dog down in the old logging road. And Danny got three and looked back grinning. I fumbled around and I tried to reload.
0: All right, welcome to the Woods and Water podcast. This is Garrett. Today I'm with Mark Cloker. Um, he's with Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks, with the uh, Hunters Ed Division. And you've got a big title, so I'm not going to say it. Why don't you give that out to the people?
1: Yeah. Uh, so I, for uh, Region Six in Northeast Montana, and the Communication and Education Program Manager. Okay. So what
0: does that entail?
1: So. Um, the communication parts of things is basically I put out press releases of things going on in Region 6, whether that be a public meeting or maybe, um, you know, a poaching case or whatever that may be. Um, I run a pretty active Facebook page, FWP uh, Region 6 face- Facebook page. Um, I occasionally do things like this although so this is my first podcast but um you know get uh, interviewed by reporters or maybe on a tv station or whatever it may be um so that's kind of the communication end of things the education end of things uh I'd say the biggest part is the hunter and bow hunter and now trapper education programs which takes up quite a bit of my time and I love it um and then uh, there's a lot of aquatic education we do going into schools taking kids fishing um and then I do you know just occasionally like a culprits in school might. Micro- Asked me to come over and talk about furs and skulls and and critters of the plains, and I'll come over there and give those type of presentations too. So it's a pretty fun job. I'm never a dull moment. So, how did you get started in it? Because I know you
0: were a teacher to start with, but how did you end up where you are now?
1: Yeah, great question. So, I always grew up loving the outdoors, hunting, fishing, everything like that. I I had it pretty much from an early age. I wanted to go into some type of career where I could do that. So, um, and I went to college to basically be a biologist. Um, I got a wildlife biology degree from University of Montana and kind of bounced around a few uh, kind of temporary jobs. I actually worked for FWP on a Swift Fox survey in 2000 Um, and then wasn't really finding the, the jobs that I wanted, especially to stay in Montana. And so I decided, you know what? I know I can get a job in Montana if I become a teacher uh, both my parents were in education as well so I went back to college and got a science teaching degree and um, then I kind of allowed me to have the summers off although not off I always worked in the summers uh, mostly as a firefighter uh, and other range tech type jobs where I got to work with wildlife as well which was awesome um, and then this job Came about uh, after about ten years of teaching, and I was kind of looking for a change in direction. Even though I love teaching, I just was looking for something a little more family-friendly for me with with a couple kids, and so uh, it kind of fit right up my alley. Being the education part of it, the communication part of it, the writing, and the you know Facebook and all that stuff, I kind of had to learn as I as I went. But no, it's been great. It's been a great job, and I've been in it for about nine years now.
0: That's cool. So. I want to backtrack you a little bit. You said you did a swift fox survey. What did you do on that? Were you guys flying around and counting them or tagging them or what?
1: So just a quick background there. So swift fox, the smallest member of the dog, Candid family that we have in Montana, about the size of a house cat. So they were plentiful across the the western states. Um, But in the 30s when we did a lot of predator control and poisoning and things like that, they were basically extirpated from Montana. Um, but Canada started re-releasing them in southern Saskatchewan and Alberta in the basically early to late 90s. And, you know, there's no, no uh, hardcore wall up on the Canadian border. And so these fox started moving down into Montana. They'd been seen here and there. And so in, in 2000, we worked with Canada on doing basically following their protocol for the census. And so to get to your question, um, we live trapped them. So okay. there was random transects, uh, we'd set out live traps at night, they're nocturnal primarily. Um, so over the winter, so basically it was November to February, and it was a tough winter, not as tough as this winter, but it was, it was fun. Um, so we live trapped them, we handled them, um, we'd ear tag them, uh, take blood samples, um, condition samples, and so forth. But overall goal of just getting a population estimate
0: and I guess, what did the population come out to?
1: So at that time, I can't remember what the models wise, we caught about 40. Um, This year, they actually, so this survey is done about every five years. And just this year, we just completed it again. And I think they caught up to 90. Um, But using that in different models, um, I I honestly can't give you a a definite number where they're at. In fact, I think that still has to be figured out. But we did find out by about, Uh, 2010 that the population was enough that we could sustain uh, a harvest so there is actually a 10 quota harvest for a portion of northeast montana that you can trap a swift fox other than that to tell your listeners you can't shoot them they're not like coyotes so that they're non-game so you have to actually trap them if you're going to harvest one
0: yeah i didn't even know that we had them up here that's that's news to me. So are they more coyote colored? I guess I don't even really remember what they look yeah,
1: like. Yeah, they, they actually look, and it's one of my favorite things to bring out uh, at these educational things I come to. i got a couple furs and a mount um, that I show folks, and they're just a really beautiful little critter. Um, and honestly, could easily be mistaken for a coyote pup. Okay. Um, like I say, they weigh three to five pounds, so they're small. Jeez. Um, but they are kind of grayish. A uh, telltale to tell them apart from red fox, though, is they have a black tip on their tail. Um, whereas red fox have a white tip, I mean, 95% of the time. Um, but their coloration is fairly grayish. Um, they do have some orange on their muzzle and on their neck, but they're okay. cool little critter, man. They're awesome and, and kind of seen all across northeast Montana, but primarily tied to sh- intact shortgrass prairie. So, you know, some areas like North Culbertson and stuff like that where there's more farm ground, they wouldn't be very common.
0: Okay. Okay trying to think of areas where I might start looking for them. Ah, they're but, cool, man. Yeah. So I guess since you're ear tagging them, is it like like a cow ear tag, like something people will notice and can read the number off of so they can report? Or So
1: they've done a couple different things. When we did it, I kind of misspoke. We actually tattooed them. Oh. Um. And the first one... <laughs> I'll never forget the first one I I did. I got green tattoo ink all over my my bibs and all over my face, and it was just just wild. Um, and then and then they've kind of they moved to more of a hard plastic one. That yes, that, you, that was part of the reason. So you could easily ID them. Well, maybe not easily, but you could ID them potentially through a spotting scope, um, or if they're recaptured, then obviously you have that ID number. Um, this year they went uh, back to the ear tags, and also um, a study was going with the Smithsonian. Mostly through Fort Belknap, where, they're, where they have been helping release some of them and, and, and do population censuses. They actually gave us, I believe, ten callers, um, to, and so GPS collared uh, about ten individuals that actually. Um, It's pretty awesome because that you know, it's like up to date as long as they're within cell service location data to basically see where they're moving um, If they would move down to Belknap uh, or or north uh, of Belknap if they were on Belknap and that gives us an idea We know there's barriers like there is for every wildlife and We've kind of seen a pretty good barrier with the milk river with these critters.
0: Okay, how big of an I guess We're still in the swift fox. Hey, man,
1: swift fox are awesome. Yeah,
0: that's cool. So I guess how big of an area were they covering? Was it like a little one-mile range, or were they getting big?
1: Uh, They were getting pretty big. I've seen some uh, initial maps. Um, Just, again, this has only been over the last several months, but covering like 60, 80, 100 miles. It sounds like, you know, like a lot of critters, They uh, um, young males, Are wandering, trying Mm -hmm. to figure out where they where they want to go. But once they kind of establish a territory, so to speak, they're they're fairly social. I mean, not not near as much, let's say, wolves, um, but they do like to be around other swift fox beyond breeding.
0: Yeah, and since they're kind of new to the area too, I mean, there's a lot of open range for them to figure out and get their own space
1: there is yep and they they're they're pretty efficient at what they do um i mean they're as small as they are i mean they're only taking down pretty small mammals maybe you know lizard occasionally birds if they can catch them but
0: mostly like mice and stuff yep yep. Okay. they've taken out the gophers too i suppose
1: i hope they takes out a number of them if they can i'm sure they can for sure yeah
0: so how do they? I guess how do they interact with coyotes? Coyotes so, taking them out too? Yeah,
1: I mean there's definitely a um, a com- competitive uh, thing there. If coyotes see them, they'll kill them for sure. Okay. And so that that's probably one of their main predators for sure. And I mean even large owls um, and other predator birds.
0: Yeah, I guess the size of a cat. Owl yeah, will take out your cat or hawk, hawk oh, yeah, will take out your cat
1: for sure. They and they they den. I mean that's kind of their one defense mechanism besides being swift as their name implies. <laughs> Um, but, but part of that, uh, you know, like I said, the intact shortgrass prairie is kind of their, their, their home base because they can move well through it. So when you get to taller sagebrush and things like that, they struggle a little bit more because of predation.
0: So like, like good cow pastures, is that a good place to find them?
1: Fantastic. Yep. And, 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 again, more and more, and like you said, you haven't seen one yet, Garrett. Um, people are just seeing them and reporting them. And um, Sometimes they're like, what the heck was that thing, you know, because <laughs> they are, I mean, they're, they're, they're unique for sure.
0: Well, I mean, I may have seen them and just assumed it was a coyote pup yep. out of distance or something because, I mean, seeing a coyote is kind of old hat. I don't even notice it anymore unless the furs are good, then I'll shoot it. But, I mean, otherwise I just don't even pay attention to it. It's just a coyote out there, so I definitely could have seen one by now. Yep, how much to drive around.
1: Yep, absolutely. And and the primary uh, trapping area was was basically a little bit east of Opheim and then all the way west over to Haver. So, again, not much in your area. I think just because um, not quite the right habitat, intact enough, large enough. Well, and
0: between Haver and Opheim is pretty much a lot of nothingness. Yeah. (laughs) There's a lot of open space for him to be alone, not get bothered. So what I wanted to really talk to you about is... There is, as we were talking about today at our meeting, our um, hunter ed, bow hunter ed instructors are starting to age out. and There's not very many people around my age that are taking it up. So I guess try to convince the young people out there why they should become an instructor and how they do it.
1: So we did a great job today of kind of going around the room to all these instructors we had here, a little over 20, um, about why they do it. Um, and, and we saw lots of things in there about, you know, I want to pass it on. I want the hunting tradition to, to continue. Um, I want to keep people safe if they're out there. I want to, um, you know, um, teach good ethics for, you know, any outdoor recreation. So, I mean, if you have any kind of passion for um, good, good ethics in the field, good uh, safety in the field for for yourself or any others that you're concerned about. I mean, what better way to pass that on than being a hunter education instructor? Um, it's extremely fulfilling. Um, you know, volunteerism as a, as a generality, I would say, is is kind of. Going away. I mean, it, it, we struggle to find volunteers for for things that used to be, uh, you know, almost have too many, um, and and we've seen that in the Hunter Ed world a little bit. I I, I, I personally think there's some generational things there. Um, just you know, this older generation just that was that was more in their in their wheelhouse. Um, I feel like overall. Um, you know, our younger generations maybe aren't as apt to to want to volunteer. But Hunter Ed is I mean, it it's it is really fulfilling because again it's it's uh passing on a passion that you already have uh to the next generation and it's really cool. Um and you know, and ideally, I mean it, it I'm not gonna lie, it can take up some time. It can um, you know, um especially if you teach multiple classes a year, but the more instructors we have, kind of the less uh um time-consuming it is because you maybe only come in one night and teach two chapters um, and then you know other instructors come in and teach some of the other chapters and some of the other activities so the the more instructors you have the kind of easier it gets okay
0: yeah for sure I think a good way to get started too is if you know somebody like the guy that started you on hunters at or whatever whoever taught you if he's still doing it or she talk with them about it and ask if you can't assistant teach because that's a thing too yes absolutely.
1: yep and 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 answer i didn't answer your other part of your of that last question garrett was uh to become an instructor it's pretty easy there's a there you just go to our web page there's an education tab you get down into hunter education and then there's a a whole link that says you know become an instructor and it kind of gives you a background of of what's going on it's a a fillable pdf that you sign and then turn in um basically we'll I don't want to say we'll take anybody but for the most part we will. Um there is you don't is a, have a record of killing people y- yes, you probably Yes. Need. There there is a, a, a there is a background check. Um, but I was encouraging a a gentleman tonight that that maybe had somebody he was interested in 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 being an instructor. I said just bring them to your next class. Just have them come. They don't have to teach. They can just sit in and watch and see what you do. And honestly that's how we've gained several instructors. In our area here around Glasgow where I help teach is some parents have come in and been through the class with the kids and they're like wow this is awesome I want to help out with this Um, and again everybody's got demands on their time and it is time-consuming but um, it's very fulfilling.
0: So when you become an instructor and you're going to teach a class what what does it entail for people that well there's some people that haven't even taken it they just were grandfathered in and didn't have to take it that listen if they want to become one what I guess, what's the layout like? What are you doing if you're going to teach a class? Like if it's a three-day class, what's the layout? What do you do?
1: Yeah, so it, it's pretty flexible. Um, I mean, I allow my instructors um, to, to do it how they want. Um, Sometimes, I'll, I'll back up a little bit. So it's uh, it's we base the instruction off of a manual that's been put together that's used statewide, um, Montana-centric, um, and then covers everything that we want to cover. Um, it's 10 chapters. Um, Overall, we figure about an hour a chapter. It might be a little bit more, you know, when you're doing some hands-on activities with guns. We really, uh, especially in the classes, really encourage, um, you know, the kids get up out of their seats uh, handling firearms, passing them around, crossing fences, um, going through scenarios like, uh, you know, zones of fire if you were hunting birds. We, we do all those kind of integrated with the class. So the class is usually around 12 to 14 hours, but it can be, you know— you might do it Monday, Wednesday, Friday of one week and Monday, Wednesday, Friday the next week. Or you might do it four nights in a row. That's typically what we do here in Glasgow um, of about three and a half hours a piece. Um, some instructors I know have just done like a Sunday one week and a Sunday the next week. So they, they put it together over a two-week period. Kind of to, again, one of the biggest challenges maybe you're getting there is, is with kids is just uh, being able to work around their busy schedules as well. Um, so... I mean, ideally, I would say, especially if you incorporate a field day, um, which, again, incorporates a lot of this hands-on stuff and maybe even live firing, um, it's probably around a 20-hour commitment per class. Um, You know, uh, just uh, the eight years I've been on the job, most towns, let's say like a a Culbertson size um, or Scobie or, you know, Bainville, usually it's only one class a year, maybe two. It kind of just depends, and you know, different classes of kids have different numbers, I guess. Um, but you know, you're you can take hunter ed for, at age 10 or up to 99, but usually it's 10, 11, 12, 13 year olds. Um, so you might get kids off across a broad range of grades, fifth, sixth, seventh. Um, here in Glasgow, you know, we're a B size school, um, maybe average 60 some kids per. Um, you know school class and I would say about half of them take Hunter Ed maybe a little more than half which is way more than the national average Uh, so Montana's still looking good there so we usually do about three classes a year I would say on average in Glasgow and it varies anywhere between 15 and 20 kids a class.
0: And is it just kind of broke up between when kids aren't doing sports, like the basketball kids do it, when the football kids might do it?
1: Yep, yep. We we really work hard to, one, try to get a class in before um, our drawing deadlines, especially oh. for those, so those 12-year-olds, let's say, that want to put in for an elk permit or an antelope or a, or a cow permit or cow license um, to, to get a class in before those deadlines so they can become certified and apply. Because basically at that point, once they're turning 12 by January uh, 14th of the following year, so in this year be 2024, um, they basically have every right as like a 35-year-old hunter they can put in for the same things and everything. And actually some, some extra tags that they can get. And actually cheaper, uh, under 18 gets tags uh, half price, okay. which is nice. Yeah. I'm
0: trying to remember. I think when I did mine with Mr. Reller over there way back in the day, uh, I think that was the plan on ours too because it was – I think it was right spring right before, like we were done like the week before uh, drawing deadlines. So then the kids that – whose family hunted in the special draw units all got to put in for that, which was – nice for them. Didn't matter
1: for me. Yeah. We weren't that big into it back then. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I hear you. And, you know, it's nice being in, you know, in the Glasgow area here, in, in particular, where we have the breaks that, you know, have a fair amount of elk. And of course, we got cow elk down there, and there's youth youth opportunities for cow elk. Um, and then antelope, you know, of course, but, you know, everybody can buy a general deer tag. So, you know, that isn't as important. But we usually run a class, for instance, in Glasgow, we try to get one done in, in March, so they can put in for that first Um, ahead of that first drawing of April 1. And then we try to get another one in in either April or May so they can beat that June 1 deadline. And then it's almost like a kind of a demand. Um, There's been years where we've only done two classes and, and, and that seems to be sufficient. But if we start, let's say, getting into... Um, July, and we get all these phone calls. Hey, are you guys doing another class? You can do another class. We keep track of those uh, those parents or kids, and then like yeah, we'll put one together in August or September. So it, it, that one's that one's kind of more by necessity, I guess, if we need it.
0: Yeah, and part of it, if you're the instructor, is you get to set the dates on when it is. Like, you yep. try to fit, fit in the kid's schedule, but you also kind of get to fit it into your schedule,
1: too. Yeah, exactly. So I, I kind of mentioned that to the instructors today. is like, hey, first of all, you guys got to be there. In fact, I was talking with some Glasgow instructors now of our next class in May. I was like, is it going to work for you? No, I got to be out of town here, but I can work there. And I'm like, oh, okay. Um, but we do, as best as I can, try to schedule it, you know, between sports if possible. Um, for instance, our last class in Glasgow, um, I asked uh, one of my coworkers is really involved in hockey and I'm like, is hockey gonna be done after this week? She's like, Yep, yep. And I knew uh basketball was basically done for for the kids at that point. I'd forgot wrestling. Well <laughs> that week was uh, um kind of the state AAU um championship week. And so unfortunately, um some kids like no, I can't do that. I got I gotta worry about wrestling right now. Um and, for instance, our next class we're probably going to try to do after junior high track's over, so towards the end of May.
0: Yeah, and then you're rolling into baseball season, though, so yeah, you've got, you got rolling, a really yep, tight yep, window.
1: Yeah, i got I got a kid in baseball, too, and so, yeah, it's uh it's challenging. But, like, you know, it's one of those things Um, we, we try to tell parents that may, well, you know, little Johnny's going to miss his baseball game if he's doing 100 ed, and we're like, how long is little Johnny going to play baseball? Yeah. Maybe maybe, maybe, through high school, you know, maybe another yeah. couple of years. But I said he's going to be hunting for the rest of his life. And so, yeah. and, and honestly, I feel our coaches around here in any sport are, I mean, majority of them, if they're not hunters, um, maybe used to be, and they understand the importance of it. And they're usually very accommodating. They're not going to cut little Johnny's playing time because he missed practice tonight because of Hunter Ed. I hope.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Missing one game is, I mean, for a lifetime. I would have given up a whole season worth of sports you know yep. the hunt for the rest of my life no yep. doubt as and, much as i loved it
1: but. and you know and just to add one more in there garrett even though it's important or we think it's important to try to get them ahead of those deadlines honestly doing classes in the summer is sometimes the easiest because yep. um they don't have school i mean because like when, when we do this classes in the spring the kids going to school from eight to four um, we usually do classes from about 5.30 to 8.30 or almost 9 o'clock. And so maybe they get a break in there to eat dinner and maybe do some homework. But it's a long day for them. So sometimes doing them in the summer can be can be better for that as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah, less sports and everything. And if you do them in the wintertime, it gets dark here pretty early. So yeah. And, and, a lot of it, kids live out of town, so yep. that drive in the dark, fighting deer all the way home is...
1: Yep. And even like, we like to do a lot of these activities outside and shoot. And we do one in early March before the time change, especially, I mean, it's dark by six o'clock. So we got, we have like a half hour to get out there.
0: Plus you got a bunch of 12 year olds out there in the cold. I mean, March in Montana is still pretty cold. Yep.
1: In fact, this last class we had in March, um, we had to cancel the field day because of conditions. Yeah.
0: (laughs) But they had to cancel our field day when I did it. And then they moved it to like the next week and it was still cold. I mean, we were all out there in coveralls and (laughs) <laughs> shivering trying to shoot cricket twenty twos and it just wasn't a fun time for anyone but
1: yeah and and even just like i mean i you know we tell the kids you know bring you know bring bring warm clothes, dress well, but even like you get a twelve year old with big old mitts on or something and they're trying to handle even these inert firearms that we use to be able to work the actions it's it's challenging,
0: yeah, so now that we did the hunter ed stuff, how did you get started in the outdoors? You said you kind of grew up doing it, but
1: yeah, no, great question. So um, I grew up um, actually, well, pretty much all in eastern Montana. Um, we moved to Jordan when I was about one. Um, and my dad grew up in Anaconda uh, and was very into hunting and fishing. And so I just grew up with it. Um, my mom, not so much. She's, I mean, she tags along, but she that's never been her thing. But um, we were fortunate to have several landowners in the Jordan area that that would allow us to hunt. Um, and I just tagged along with my dad. I loved it. Whenever he said, "Hey, Mark, do you want to go take a ride with me?" Heck yeah! Whether that was just to go look for a coyote, or uh, or to go look for a deer or an antelope. Um, actually, by the time I turned 12 and started uh, hunting uh, and took hunter safety, actually did it in Glasgow. We'd moved to Nashville by that point. Um, and I, just a just a extreme passion of mine. I, I couldn't believe that uh, my class of 20 kids or so in Nashville, was only really me and about two others that, that had any interest in hunting. Um, and I, and I've seen that a lot over the years that, uh, you know, a lot of kids in Montana in our rural part of Montana, maybe take Hunter's Ed shoot one deer and they're like, eh, or, you know, maybe they hunt for a couple of years, but I never, never, never took a break. Yeah. <laughs> I've loved I it. Too. And again, that's why I kind of changed my career path to, to knowing I know when I could teach and stay in Montana. Cause I didn't, I didn't want to leave. I wanted to have that opportunity. Um, and beyond hunting uh, and fishing, uh, my family was always very involved in, in, in all types of outdoor rec, whether that was camping or boating, um, hiking. Um, we did it all, and I'm instilling those same qualities in my kids, which has been great.
0: Yeah, it's fun. It definitely is. I mean, I've said this before on the show, but I uh, since I had my son, he's four now, taking him out, it's like seeing the outdoors through a four-year four-year-old's eye now because instead of me just you know I know what I'm doing I know where I'm going I'm not really paying attention to things well now I gotta slow down for him and he's pointing out every little rock or bug or bird or anything like that it's like you're kind of reliving the outdoors in the way you have it for a long time so Oh man. And, a lot and, of fun
1: and you wait till he starts hunting and, and, and shoots that first deer um just real quickly with my older son who's uh, 13 now um his I did uh, have him hunt as an apprentice as an 11 year old he did take hunter's ed and then you had to wait a year to be a full-fledged hunter but um you know we went out uh one of those youth days and we had several doe tags and uh and a, his buck tag of course and I said you know hey buddy what do you want to shoot and he's like you know, whatever presents the first easy, you know, broadside shot. I'm like, good for you, man. So I didn't pressure him at all. And uh, the first opportunity he had was a little mule deer uh, fawn, actually a buck fawn. He's proud of that too. Um, But uh, he made like a 75-yard shot on it. It was like the most patient deer in the world (laughs) because there was quite a while before we got him all set up and comfortable. and Probably a uh, lot of noise too. Oh, yeah. And so it was a very uh, good one-shot kill, dropped right in the spot. Um, and I, you know, I'm an emotional dude is maybe seen the day a little bit too, but yeah, I was just like, just tears were falling and I was like, Oh my God. And he was just more like, yeah, that was pretty cool. You know, <laughs> I mean, yeah. it was, he, he, uh, he, he likes it. Um, but, uh, it, it was as, as a dad, as a parent, it's, it's pretty rewarding for sure. Yeah, I'm
0: excited for that. And I mean, he drags around his little bow that I used growing up and that my dad used when he grew up a little oh, bear cool. curve bow. And so like when I'm out in the yard practicing. I shoot my arrows and we scoot up and then he shoots his arrows and then grab the, grab the arrows. He's only had about one or two that actually make it to the target. No (laughs) no matter how close I get them up, but yeah, it's fun. I'm excited
1: for it. That's great, man. Yeah. I do the same thing with my kids. It's, it's, it's fun. And like you said, and you'll, you'll find out whether you have more kids or whatever, but maybe, maybe some, and I talked to friends of mine too. Some other kids are really, really into it. And so it's easy to to you know, bring them along, and some just are like, it's just not my thing, and I, and I think you got to be okay with that. Yeah. Um, and you know, and and it just the way it is, kids get into other things maybe, and you just got to support them and whatever they have interest in. But it's sure sure fun when they like to do what you like to do too.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I was I was kind of my dad's little buddy when it came to that thing growing up. My brother and sister, were, I mean, they're outdoors too, but they weren't quite into it like I was. Like we'd get home on the school bus, and I would just sit at the window with my binoculars watching deer <laughs> from the from the uh window and you know they would be inside watching tv or whatever but I was always way more into it than they were not that they're not I know that <laughs> one of them for sure is going to listen to this and say that he's a hunter too which <laughs> I know you are Jake
1: but no and I would argue and and my brother Luke uh is a still a lifelong hunter too and he'll admit it; he's not near as hardcore as I am but he still enjoys it and, and has always been uh fun to hunt with too
0: yeah so I guess why don't you uh tell us What's your most memorable hunt that you can think of, either you or taking someone or anything like that? You already talked about your son in his first year, but what's something that the listeners might like to hear about? Cool story.
1: Oh, geez, put me on the spot there. I got, I got so many of them. Um, you know, probably the most uh, interesting hunt I've been on recently, um, just very self-satisfying, uh, was I got a U tag in the brakes. Um, I kind of knew that, you know, I, would be 70 years old before I drew a Ram tag. And so I'm not the luckiest person in the world. So I'm like, I want to shoot a bighorn sheep. And so I've been putting in for use and, um, uh, the first one I had, I, uh, you know, decided I wanted to go chase it with a bow. I'm um, not the best bow hunter in the world. I love it, but I'm just not very effective. I'll hundred percent admit that I'm not patient enough. Um, so I, I carted around the bow and the brakes for a number of days. Um, had some, had some good opportunities, never knocked an arrow, but it was a ton of fun. Um, but that was on September 14th and I was hiking out in the dark that night back to my pickup about three miles. And I'm like, I'm bringing my gun back here tomorrow and I'm going to, I'm going to shoot a big orange sheep. <laughs> so anyway, it, it was just a, it was a fun experience. Cause I, I got back up early in the morning, hiked in about three miles again, uh, found a group right away. Kind of, kind of put them to bed the night before, um, made a, a fairly easy shot, I guess, as far as that's concerned, um, And, and and I, I mean, I walked in with my, with my frame pack, basically with the confidence that I was going to be pulling this thing out of there. And so I uh, quartered it up and put it all up in one load. Luckily, I was way up on the top of this coolie at the time. And once you got down to the bottom of the coolie, it was fairly flat. And so I took it out in one trip and it, it was, it was fun. It was just very gratifying being able to do that on your own and, and being able to to work through those uh, obstacles that you had, and and just just really cool getting a different critter like that that I hadn't had the opportunity f- before.
0: Yeah, I think uh, a ram is everyone's dream. Anyone in you know North oh, yeah. America, it seems like that, or moose or caribou. So I'd be okay with you. I'd be I'd be okay with any of them. But I haven't won a thing in my life. So I'm, <laughs> it took me like six or seven years to draw my first antelope rifle tag in this area. That's oh how, man, that's how unlucky I am. Oh jeez. Where my wife, I should start having my wife apply just so I can go along because they pretty much just set a tag aside for her every <laughs> year. Whatever she wants to draw, she draws it.
1: Man, we hear that as employees of FWP all the time. It's like that uh, That uh, you might, uh, you know, get a tag easier than other people. I'm like, oh, no, I know a lot of FWP employees that have put in for RAM tags for 20 years and haven't got one. So I don't yeah. think we get any special privileges.
0: Well, I guess we're getting kicked out of our room here, so huh. we're going to have to cut her. But I guess thanks for coming on. Uh so is there anything closing you want to tell the people about Hunter Ed or anything like that, words of wisdom?
1: You know, one thing, uh, because of you know a shortage of instructors we kind of have now in some of our areas, it is challenging to get a class uh, put together sometimes. I know that's frustrating for parents and those students that want to get in the class as well maybe use that for motivation, um, maybe become an instructor, be, be that extra person in the community. Even if you're just a very part-time one that can just help out here and there when you have time, um, to, to help, you know, pass on this tradition and, and get these kids certified the right way and, uh, turn them into lifelong hunters for a fantastic, uh, activity they can do the rest of their life.
0: Yeah. Well, thanks a ton and hopefully be hearing more from you later on, maybe we'll do another one, call in, get a little bit longer one, some more info. Yeah.
1: You know, what would be great is if we can put together a class, uh, soon, um, in your country. And maybe after that, we can do kind of a wrap up to tell your listeners how everything went and, and how, how we put it together. So yeah, great.
0: And since Wade's the one kicking us out, just remember, Wade, I have to do a class with you in June. So you're going to get on at that time. Right. Okay. All right. All right, people. Thanks a lot. Um,
1: Thank you for coming on and Hey thanks Gary for having me this is great All right we'll talk to you later